Uh, before we get going with the question period, I'd just like to announce the uh, program for next week. Uh, the, the title is Drug Addiction, Crime, and the Role of the Police Service in Harm Reduction. We have Rob Davis from uh, the Lethbridge Police Chief is coming to speak uh, next week. So I think it'll be a very interesting session. Uh, he'll outline some of the programs that they're they involved with in terms of, uh, well, fentanyl is a big uh, problem, as everybody knows, and uh, the police is uh, collaborating with many other organizations to try and uh, stem that tide. So I think it will be a very interesting session next week. Uh, I'd like to invite the Paula back to the podium and the uh, question period will start shortly. Uh, there's a microphone right over there and please uh, state your name. Uh, keep your questions brief. Uh, you're allowed a, little, a small abstract, but uh, if it gets too long, I'll uh, <laughs> cut you off. So here we go. Uh-oh, tough one right off the top. <laughs> good, good afternoon, Dr. Burns. Uh, there's a concern out in the community, um, perhaps in, in more among employers, about uh, maintaining skills and what happens when our, our skilled journeymen in the construction industry retire and other skilled journeymen retire. Uh, what's your perspective on, on how we're doing in terms of skill replacement and do we have the, the right programs available and do we have the kids with the aptitudes uh, and interest to take those programs to fill future needs? Wow, that's a great question and, and a bit complex answer, but I think I can tackle it. Thank you, Mayor Chris. Um, so. There's two things to it. In, in our apprenticeship program, for those of you who don't know, our apprenticeship and industry training, we are really a partner with the government. So the, apprentice, the local apprenticeship office, as well as provincial office, sort of looks at the number of registered apprentices and then determines how many spots in our class that we can have. So we try to meet the need. And as I mentioned earlier, um, we have really good fill rates. So the, the spots they give us, we have lots of people in them. So we have a continual sort of development of apprenticeship. But it is a three-way partnership. It's us, it's the government, it's also the employer. So they need to make a commitment to continue to send um, apprentices to us. If they have only journeymen um, and they're not growing apprentices within the industry, then it makes it tough for us to do. However, there are some things that we do do, and that is that we have, and we have different names for them, but I'll just call them pre-employment programs. And th so those are programs where people can come and learn some of the skills that are related to a certain um, journeyman ticket um, without being an apprentice. So they might be a certificate program, it might even be a diploma program, but they can get a certain amount of that training without actually being a registered apprentice. And so that's one of the ways that we keep the flow going. The third thing I'd say is that it's really important for us to make sure that we are responsive. And I said earlier, that's a bit of a challenge. But we can be responsive when we know that there are shifts in industry, which we need industry to tell us, um, so that we can prepare programs to retrain people or re-educate people into new fields. And I, I, some of the examples, I think, in the food processing industry, they've put in lots of equipment over the last five to ten years in particular, which requires a different skill set to operate the equipment than it did before they had the equipment. 
right? So we work closely with them to make sure that we can help with those skills as well. Um, some of the skills um, are across industries and some aren't. Some are very specific to industry, but that's probably the third way that we respond to that. Our program advisory committees, which have the industry folks on them, are really key to our being responsive to the community, and that's one of the ways that we do it. So, thank you. Thank you, Paula, for your excellent presentation. Mary Shillington. Hi, Mary. I was an off-campus counselor for one point in my career, uh, and uh, so I know a little bit about the college in the early mid-90s. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about this being a, a, a publicly sponsored, financially sp sponsored uh, program, uh, college. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, A, is, w what's happening with money now? Yeah. Uh, who does it come from? Do we get anything, do you get anything from the city? Uh, those kind of things, so curious about that and, and what yeah. this, the total budget might be to yep. blow our minds. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so our, t our total budget is, Ninety million dollars. I can start there. R round figures. Ninety million dollars. We, um, in the neighborhood of forty-eight to fifty percent of that, maybe up to fifty-two on some years. Fifty-two percent um, comes from the provincial government, so we are technically still publicly funded. Fifty percent plus <laughs> of that. Um, tuition revenue makes up somewhere in the neighborhood of probably twenty-five or twenty-six percent of that. Some grant revenue would make up another maybe five, six percent. Um, and then we do have some contract training or third party contracts um, that we do that makes up the rest of it. Um, but it is, the 50% is not growing, it's shrinking. <laughs> um, and we, we have been supported um, for sure over the last couple of years with a 2% increase to our grant. But if you think about a 2% increase to only 50% of your operating expenses, it's not actually um, sort of growing. It's not a growth industry, put it that way. So um, that, that's why we do have a strategy that is about resource innovation. So it's not only how do we generate additional revenue, but it's also how do we make sure that we're using the resources we have in the most efficient way possible. The other um, area of revenue, obviously, is in when we do things like a capital campaign or we have special projects where we're raising funds from philanthropic contributions, um, and, the, and the student scholarship falls into that category as well, so. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Paula, for an excellent presentation. Uh, and taking the time out from a certain, a very busy schedule to be with us today. Uh, as a preamble, uh, I, I just want to uh, mention how fortunate we are to have both a college and a university here in this city, and particularly to have the cooperative uh, nature that's, that's developed between the two. Uh, I think it's to everybody's benefit that, that the, these two institutions are here and cooperating with one another. Now, in the way of a question, I was born and raised here in Lethbridge, and during these years in my life, there have been a lot of changes. Uh, the, there's been much more diversity in, in the development within the community. Yeah. A lot is going on, but still and all, this is really an agricultural center. And my question is, what are the long-term plans of the college in relation to agricultural development? 
Great question. And I, I just have to add that, you know, earlier when I was talking about Kate Andrews and the start to the college, this is the fellow who raised the dollars for Kate Andrews to realize the vision. And uh, I don't remember all the details of the story, but I know the conversation was something like, we need this much to get going in this amount of time. And it took him three days to get it. So incredible. <laughs> um, so in answer to your question, um, and I was sharing at the table that when I came to Southern Alberta, I didn't know a lot about Southern Alberta, but I took a drive around, explored a few places, looked around and I thought, I'm not very smart, but I'm pretty sure agriculture is really important here. So I did some digging. I started asking about the agriculture programs that we had at the college, where we were, what the opportunities were. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. There's a huge amount of opportunity. We do have a very strong part of our, our strategy is around a collaborative center of excellence in agriculture. I mentioned the um, partnership with the university. So at the same time as I'm driving around figuring there must be more to do with agriculture, I get a call from this guy named Corvan Ray, start to have some conversation with him about what's going on. And so we had so many things drop into place at one time to really help us build that foundation. But what we are doing now, we actually have two new deans that are coming in the summertime. One of them has a background that has um, engineering and agriculture together coming from uh, what was the Nova Scotia Agriculture College. Um, so we are really trying to put some resources behind both in our, our teaching staff as well as in our research staff and creating capacity for new people coming into the field. Because the, the other thing that we recognize is it's not all the people who have grown up on the farm who are going to be in agriculture. It's going to be those people with a different skill set that might be on the technology side or on the business side and really trying to look at what that is. So we know that within the province that we have a, a really unique place. Um, and as we were talking about, just that um, the, the mix of things we have in southern Alberta is huge. And so we're not letting that pass. That is an area that we are really focusing on, as well as working with, uh, with other counterparts within the whole province. Because I think the federal government is also going to provide some um, additional resources and kick into super clusters is what they're calling them. One of them will be in agriculture. And so really uh, honing in on what our specialty is in agriculture is going to be important. The partnership with the university is also important because they do research that we don't do and we do research that they don't do, um, as well as with the federal and provincial agriculture research centers that we have here. Huge opportunity, so we're, we're on it. <laughs> yeah. Hi, yes. my name is Peter Beal. Peter. And I've got two questions. I'm going to ask you to answer them separately because they're so different. Okay. The first is uh, what we see in the news that Canadian technology companies can't grow fast enough because they don't have enough talent and they can't get imported talent fast enough. How does the college figure into helping develop such talent? Wow, that's a very, very good question. So let me start with some of the things we are doing, and then there are some gaps. So one of the things that we um, do do, first of all, because we're um, a college primarily based with diploma, diploma programs make up 62 to 64% of the students that come to us. So they're two-year programs that are relatively quick, many of them based in technology field. We work very closely with economic development and the Tech Connect. Um, in terms of providing students opportunity to go there, to present to clients, to do work for clients. And if you may or may not know that about 
uh, over 50% of the employees at Tech Connect in Lethbridge are either from the college or the university. So we know we're sort of targeting the right markets in terms of some of the entrepreneurial activity that's going on. Having said that, I think what we need to do more of is actually some of the, um, what I'll call shorter courses. They might be some of those reskilling things, but I know in, I think it was in Vancouver, what they're doing is um, sort of two to three day sessions where they just invite all kinds of people to come and learn the basic technology skills to be able to go into the companies, at least at the entry level, um, to start up and be able to move forward. That's happening, I know of it happening in Vancouver, I'm not sure it's happening across the country, and so we, we have an opportunity, I think, to, to be able to do it a little quicker than we are. The second question is, uh, a few weeks ago we had a, a Syrian refugee student coming here, and she was, what, 19, I think, and her thing was, you can't stay in high school long enough to get a diploma because they were in refugee camps. And uh, so they can't really enter, fully contribute to our uh, workers, uh, you know, our, our society. Yeah. Uh, does the college plan anything to help those people achieve diplomas so that they can uh, enter our society? Yeah, actually we have, well, two areas. Um, one is the academic upgrading, which is where you can actually complete equivalent courses to your high school diploma. And so then you can go on to post-secondary education. Depending on where you're coming from, what you have, you can take different courses. It's not a preset program. And the second is in the English as a second language area. Sometimes they end up in both areas, um, but depending on their language skills, they may be able to go right into upgrading. So that is one of the things that a, a college or a comprehensive institution as part of our mandate within Alberta does. We do have an access mandate and that's part of it. Uh, I'm Patricia Boswell, and I had the privilege of teaching at the Lethbridge Community College for 25 years. Awesome. Um, <coughs> you've just touched on what, what, where my question was going, Peter. Uh, when, I was, when I started in the uh, very early 70s, continuing education in the community and night school had more students enrolled than the actual college itself. <laughs> yeah. And so it became a huge department. And then it was realized, recognized, that there were many people who were perfectly intelligent but didn't have the advantage of completing grade 12. And so the upgrading department became massive. And we, were, yeah. we, we had all, all courses in there. And you just referred to that. Yeah. And then I watched the trades go through falling down. Les, President Les Talbot went to Edmonton and got a bunch of money to do trades. It swirled again, then it was going down. Now you're doing the same thing. But general studies seem to be taking over from upgrading, because I taught in that as well, to feed people, first year university and so on. Is this to the detriment of the disadvantaged at the other end? Is upgrading still a focus, a big time focus? Because it's fine to serve the top end, but we've got to serve the bottom end too. Yes, you're absolutely right. So I would say no, general studies is not taking away from the upgrading and that focus. That is something that we are very keen on and recognize it as an important part of our role, particularly in our region. Some of the other um, regions have maybe more than one college that's close enough. We're the only one actually that can do this. And so we are um, placing a, a real emphasis on it. 
Um, and the other thing I would say that one of the things about the college is what we'd like to do is think that we can at some point accept everybody and get them to the place where they want to go. Um, which is a little bit different from a university where that their um, acceptance um, admissions procedures are a little bit different. There are certain people that are kept out because of the nature of the programming. Our upgrading program is the one that we want to make sure that we um, provide access to. One of the things we did, I think it was three years ago now, I might be wrong on the time, when we looked at all of our tuitions, we actually lowered the tuition on our up upgrading program to provide more access for those who might be more disadvantaged. The, the tuition on some of the other programs where we know the, graduate, the graduation rate and the employment rate is like 100%, um, the tuition's a little bit higher, but we did actually lower it on the access side. So, yeah. My name's Pat James. Hi, Pat. Um, I've been retired for 20 years, but when I was in business with my husband, we always had our mechanics through your Lethbridge College program. Mm. Some of them. Um, worked part-time and then went to college. And uh, they really were wonderful. It was a wonderful way to do. And uh, my husband was quite involved at the college at the time too. But I just That's wanted great. to add that, uh, that uh, our business thrived because of the college. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. And I'm sure that uh, we thrive because of your support. <laughs> Yeah. Hi, <clears throat> my name is Henning Mundell, and thank you, Paula, for your presentation. You gave examples out of the plethora of uh, specific technical uh, uh, areas, but I want to ask on one specific one, sure. which is uh, I'm quite interested in um, because of where we are, and that is that uh, the training in relation to servicing and maybe building, wind power, uh, turbines. Um, yep. We're sort of a natural one for the servicing, but what about the next step of developing and so on? Where is that at? That, that's um, a very interesting and a bit of a complex question. <laughs> um, so where we are in terms of, we still have a wind turbine training program. We launched that um, really probably eight or nine years ago, I guess, in terms of response and seeing that there was potentially a need. Really big um, uptake on the program. It tailed off a little bit. Now coming back, not that it's ever been undersubscribed, but, you know, it was oversubscribed for a while and we added a, an additional cohort. The actual building, because as you probably know by asking the question, a lot of it doesn't happen in Canada, right? It's not manufactured in Canada. That is something that we have talked about, and I can see that coming. Um, and it's interesting as an educational institution, as I've mentioned, you need to partner within the community. So we can say, yeah, we can train the people to build the turbines, but we also need the you know, community, the industries to come around and say, you know, this is where we think we could do it. So I think there's starting to be more of that conversation, not just in wind, but also in solar. Um, and I think that over the next year or so, as the province sort of decides how they're going to do that, we've talked to the province about the education piece. 
Um, but the manufacturing piece would be huge, and I know that Mayor Spearman is big on being able to make it at home um, as well, and so as much support as we can get from the city is helpful in terms of, they're big pieces of equipment that need a lot of room, right? So we, <laughs> we have big facilities. One of our challenges is we're close to the airport, right? And so we can only build so high. Yeah, so, but very good question, yeah. Yes. Paula, well, I've come back for another question, okay. Mary Shillington. Uh, having worked with Indigenous people quite a bit over the years, Manitoba and here, um, what's happening, like you talked about how you're trying to work together. Yeah. Uh, uh, I did a, when I worked for the college, I was off campus and, and worked with a number of the upgrading and so on, uh, people that were of Aboriginal descent. What's happening with that? What are kind, how is the programming helping them to move ahead, whether it's in, in adult basic upgrading or whatever, yep. and, and then what kind of programs are they coming into, and, and what kind of percentage is that? Yeah, so there's probably about three parts to that answer as well. Um, in terms of um, students who, FNMI students who choose to come to us, what, whether they're um, accepted into certain programs or they're coming into upgrading, we do have an Aboriginal Services Centre that really has a circle of services that wraps around what the students need, including elders, um, three elders, um, including a coordinator who's in their center all the time, sort of access, being able to access for help. They create their own groups as well to work together. Uh, the second thing would be we have an FNMI Career Pathways program, which is specific to, and I don't know the exact program names now, but there's about four or five different programs where they can take their first semester that's really culturally sensitive to their um, culture, but then starts to prepare them to go into the diploma programs for each of those four areas. And that program has been in existence for about five years. This year we're reviewing it to um, make sure um, that, that it is meeting needs. I think we take in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 students in there, probably a 50 to 60% progression rate, which is, isn't actually too bad in terms of um, progressing them through. But certainly we pay attention to also what happens with Red Crow College, because we have a memorandum of understanding with them. Um, and what we are trying to do there is to make sure that if there are programs that can be offered by Red Crow on the reserve, that we support from a curriculum development and maybe some faculty expertise perspective, as opposed to expect all their students to come to us. Agriculture is one of the examples where um, Red Crow is looking at doing the first year of our agriculture diploma, and then the second year we would do at the college. It'll probably take another year or so before that happens, but it's an area where we felt there was good synergy in terms of people being able to stay on reserve, so. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Um, I think you said that the uh, percentage of your foreign students at the college was about 10%. It's about 5%. 10% of um, FNMI. But international is about 5%. 5%, okay. Do, do you plan on keeping it at that level or are you looking to expand that? Is one question. The second yep. one was what is the differential in cost that you charge to foreign students from overseas and Canadian students for the okay. same course? Um, I can answer both of those questions, but don't quote me on the specifics. <laughs> um, so in terms of actually whether we're going to increase or not, what we have been doing is over the past year, re really looking at what is our international strategy. I think I mentioned that 
Our 5% of international students are very solidly supported by us and by each other because of the nature of how we have done it. We have not gone out and recruited and marketed in a whole bunch of countries just to get a whole bunch of international students. Um, but what we have done is to develop a program that really supports their success. And you, you saw that actually in the, the video with one of them. So we do actually think that we're going to um, attempt to grow our international a little, but in very strategic ways and in program areas, for example, where we know they can be successful, but also where um, within the province there's a need to have more graduates. So we want to be very strategic about it and it's not going to be, we're gonna turn into you know 20 or 30% of international students at our college. Um, and then the second part of your question is in terms of what it costs. It's in the neighborhood of two and a half to three times what the domestic tuition is. Um, and it's one of the things that the province is looking at in terms of should there be a regulation about that. That's a pretty standard, up to about three times a domestic student is pretty standard across Canada. Um, and it is based on, you know, if you're uh, Canadian, um, being supported by provincial government public funding um, piece, then that's sort of where it comes from. Um, but that's shifting and changing. As I said, our, our public funding is about 50%, and so colleges and universities are having to look at other ways to generate revenue. One is international. My personal belief, though, is that international should not only be used about generating revenue. It is about globalizing your campus. It's about making sure all students have the opportunity to whether they're going international or at least get that international experience from those in their classroom. And we have to be prepared to support and grow that. We can't just do it for numbers at all. May I have another question? Sure. It concerns your um, police service training. Okay. We've had several um, police chiefs uh, address SACBOR over the years, and I see next week we have the current chief. Yep. And although we have a lull at the moment, we have gone through fairly recently periods where police have actually killed people by shooting them. And although we know that you don't have Clint Eastwood on your teaching staff, no. <laughs> um, do, do you have any input into what goes into um, how you use cadets, police cadets, to use firearms at all? Yeah, so that's another complex question, and I, I might not be able to do it complete justice, but I'll, let me give it a try. Um, in our diploma program, we're not actually the ones that teach the shooting, right? Mm -hmm. So our justice program provides, and, and we're, I mentioned we're moving to a competency-based education so that we're um, aligning with the Canadian police competencies of which one would be shooting for sure. Right now, our curriculum does not include that component. That's part of the recruit training that happens in conjunction with a police service. So we would be partnering with a police service. They have to use their standards for that training, not what the college uses. So we may be teaching all about shooting, but not the actual shooting. We don't have a shooting range. Um, and that's not a competency that we assess for. It gets done when they join a police force. Thank you. I'll save my question for next week for the police chief. Okay, great. You. Yeah, you ask Rob. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
Okay, I don't see any other questions, so that allows me to ask one, I guess, as the last question. Uh, you spoke a little bit about community health, and uh, that's a dear friend of mine. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, healthy bodies, healthy minds, uh, is a big proponent of learning in a learning institution and yeah. also in the community. It's uh, yeah. health. The cost of healthcare nowadays is skyrocketing, partly because of uh, unhealthy lifestyles that people yeah. choose or they get stuck in. Or so kids uh, develop, you know, life skills early on, and it's really important to have them doing a little bit more than finger exercise when they yeah. <laughs> when they're growing up. Yeah. Can you uh, relate? I, and I know I should mention that uh, you are a big proponent of. Uh, Paula has run uh, at least one marathon that Just I know one. of. One. <laughs> so uh, she's a big proponent of uh, healthy lifestyles. So could you elaborate a little bit on uh, things that the colleagues do in that regard? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we've done, and I spoke a little bit about the employee and the student um, um, healthy lifestyle. So one of the things we did for our employees is to say, first off, um, our facilities, our gym, et cetera, are free to our full-time staff members. And we wanted to make sure that we, there was no barrier to that, right? So that was one of the things that we did. We also um, have dedicated some funding in terms of a health promotions coordinator on the student side to make sure that it's not just about providing programs that help people who are in distress, but also providing the opportunity to educate and provide programs that help prevention. I guess my, and I am, uh, and some of our staff who are here will know that I am also a big proponent of our athletics program. And certainly when you get into budget cuts, um, the question gets asked, should we continue to have our, our, our athletics programs? And I say, yes, absolutely. Um, one, they promote us in the community. Two, it is about a healthy lifestyle. And three, we're growing leaders through our athletic programs. But I do think there's more that we could do, and I think, you know, I don't know what it was like at Lethbridge College 60 years ago, but I know in some institutions I've been in, there was actually sort of a, a mandatory sort of physical education component. I can see that that is a really important part of um, competencies for our students. When we talk about professional skills, I think knowing how to live a, a healthy lifestyle and having the opportunity to participate um, is also important. So. We encourage our staff to do it, and I think we need to um, make sure that it's easy for our students as well. So, hope that helps. Thank you very much. Uh, let's give uh, Paula a hand. Thanks Thank very much for coming today. Thank you very much.